Amen. Well, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah. I'll give you time. Second to last book in the Old Testament, Zechariah. You guys have done so well with Philemon and with Jude. I thought I'd push my luck and go to the book of Zechariah. Y'all did so well with those. We'll keep going. Zechariah chapter 6. Chapter 6. I'm going to read for us verses 9 through 15. Zechariah chapter 6 verses 9 through 15. The word of God says, The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, Take an offering from the exiles, from Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, and you go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have arrived from Babylon. Take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hin, the son of Zephaniah. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. Let's pray for our time together in this word. Well, Father, we, we count it a great blessing, a great honor to have open Bibles before us today. Lord, and we thank you that in your great providence and your great wisdom that you have put our Savior on every page. Lord, and I pray that you would show us the Joshua that has come, that you would show us Jesus, the Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Lord, that we may behold the one who is our high priest, the one who is our king, the one in whom we have have put our hope and our trust and our very eternities into. Lord, we thank you that we have union with Jesus, our priest and king. Lord, and we thank you again that your word gives us the blessing of seeing him anywhere it is that we turn to. Lord, so bless the study of your word today. Bless the, the preaching of your word, Lord. Bless the hearing of your word. May we leave this place greater worshipers of Jesus Christ than when we came in. Have mercy on us. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, you may be seated. You may be seated. The book of Zechariah. The Old Testament scholar George L. Robinson calls the book of Zechariah the most messianic, the most truly apocalyptic and eschatological of all the writings of the Old Testament. And even more specifically of our actual text today of Zechariah chapter 6, verses 9 through 15, another Old Testament scholar has said this of our pericope of our section. Another scholar said this is one of the most remarkable and most precious messianic prophecies. And there is no plainer prophetic utterance in the whole Old Testament as to the person of the promised Redeemer, the office that he was to fill, and the mission that he was to accomplish. No clearer prophetic utterance than what we have before us, one scholar has said. Now, as we here at Heritage Grace Community Church are convinced of, that not only all of the scriptures are breathed out by God, but we also believe that all of the scriptures, including the Old Testament, are in fact speaking of and pointing us to the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Savior whom all of the Old Covenant saints had the blessing of looking forward to, and the Savior whom all of us in the New Covenant look back upon for our salvations. Now the passage before us today is certainly a passage that the Old Testament saints could have read to gain a glimpse of their Savior to come. And we can likewise look upon this text to assure ourselves that the Jesus of Nazareth is in fact the Messiah, God's Redeemer, our King, and our High Priest. He's seen through this typological coronation scene of, of Joshua, the High Priest, being crowned as a king. So our passage breaks itself down quite naturally, I think, into three sections. The first sections that we're going to look at is verses 9 through 11, where here we have the actual crowning of Joshua the high priest. Secondly, in verses 12 through 13, we're going to see how this, how this coming branch, how this coming branch is, is typified in this man Joshua, this priest and now king. And then thirdly, in, in verses 14 and 15, we're going to see how the building of this branch's temple will be a sign of messianic fulfillment. So that's where we're going today. Um, I thought because we're turning to the book of Ze Zechariah that I, I would have to at least spend just a moment in presenting a, a historical context for our text because I actually think that it's it becomes very relevant for a couple of reasons, uh, the historical context of the book of Zechariah. First, the author, Zechariah, his name means the Lord remembers. 
the Lord remembers. And this Zechariah, interestingly enough, is not only a priest, which he's a priest, as Nehemiah 12.12 tells us, but as we see from this letter, that he is also a prophet. And so, interestingly enough, this Zechariah holds two offices, priest and prophet. This Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai, and so both Haggai and Zechariah were writing around the, the year 520 B.C. 520 B.C. puts them during the time, um, as the scholars referred to it, as a post-exilic time, uh, a time after the exile of, uh, of Israel from the captivity that they were under in Babylon, the writing uh, post Exile, and if you recall from books such as Second Chronicles, the book of Ezra, those books tell us that, that during Israel's captivity in Babylon, uh, while they were under captivity, Babylon was conquered by the Persians under the leadership of uh, King Cyrus. King Cyrus, and what is interesting about uh, King Cyrus is that we know that God sovereignly put into King Cyrus's heart the desire to allow the Israelites to return home, but not only to return home, but to also rebuild the temple of God and to restore the worship of God in Israel. And so Zechariah is writing during this, uh, what became a very slow process, unfortunately, of having the temple of God reconstructed in Jerusalem. And so Zechariah's aim with his book is to stir up the people of God to finish rebuilding the temple. And the motivation that he's giving them for this work are these, are these prophetic utterances, are these visions that God has given to him about the future blessings that would be Israel's in the future, but particularly in the coming messianic age. And so the book of Zechariah begins at the outset in chapter 1 with a call to repentance for the people of Israel to turn from the idolatry that, that they have become entrenched in from their time in Babylon. And then beginning from verse 7 in chapter 1 all the way to our passage in chapter 6 verse 8, what we have in the first six chapters then uh, is Zechariah recalling a series of eight visions. He has eight visions that he has received from the angel of the Lord. All of these visions containing different forms of, of prophetic imagery, most of which are apocalyptic, eschatological, much of which are picked up by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. If you have a reference Bible and you just skim across, you'll see uh, certainly references to the book of Revelation. But just as John Calvin wasn't willing to write a commentary on the book of Revelation, I dare not dive into the particulars of Zechariah's visions. So instead, I chose to pick up where the visions end. But what we have now in Zechariah chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, is a, a, a real-life enactment a playing out of the future Messiah to come. 
and it's portrayed through the crowning of Joshua, the high priest, the crowning that is to be done by Zechariah. So our passage begins with a shift from from apocalyptic vision prophecy to typological prophecy. Joshua typifying the coming Joshua. So let's dive in to this first section, verses 9 through 11, uh, the crowning of Joshua the high priest. Let me just read for us these verses again and remind us. Verse 9 says, The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, Take an offering from the exiles, from Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and you go the same day, and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have arrived from Babylon. Take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest." So this section begins in verse 9 with the word of the Lord also came to me saying. So all of the prophetic prophetic visions about the coming kingdom of God have, have now come to an end. And now we have the angel of the Lord providing not a vision, but a divine message, a divine word instructing Zechariah both what to do and what to say in the acting out of this typological ceremony. And so verse 10 picks up the the details of the instruction. Verse 10 says, Take an offering from the exiles, from Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and you go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have arrived from Babylon. So what we have here are these three men who have come from Babylon to bring an offering from the exiles who are remaining in Babylon. We don't have any other details pertaining to these three men, these men, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah. We don't know anything else about them other than what the text says here. We don't have any details concerning this man, Josiah, of whom... Uh, He will host this ceremony in his home, Um, but obviously the focus of our text is is not on these men. What's so interesting about what's going on here is that if you're familiar with the situation that continued post exile from Babylon, you know that God continued to sovereignly work in the hearts of the pagan kings who remained in the land of Babylon. Because just as I remind us, reminded us of how King Cyrus is the first one who the Lord worked in to allow the people of God to return back to Israel, although he began this, even after Cyrus's death, King Darius, his successor, as well as Artaxerxes, Darius' successor, continued to support the people of Israel's return to their homeland. God continued that grace in these pagans' um, lives. And so even with the multiple kings that have come and gone in Babylon, God's continued to sovereignly provide for the rebuilding of his temple by by not only uh, allowing the exiles who were there still in Babylon to give to the temple fund, 
But even from Babylon's own treasury was gold and silver to be taken to Jerusalem. Ezra chapter 7 actually gives us, it, 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 it preserves for us the actual letter that King Artaxerxes wrote um, to enact this, this giving of, of gifts in gold and silver from Babylon's own treasury to the building and the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And, and in all that, one can't help but be reminded of how Israel's first exile ended in Egypt with the, with the, the Israelites there leaving Egypt with all of the gold and the silver um, from the Egyptians to the extent that uh, Exodus 12.36 describes it as the Israelites having plundered the Egyptians by all of the gold and silver that the Egyptians actually gave to them. So God is just once again painting for us the picture of how it is that his salvation plays out. Jesus recounts it in in a, in, a, in a similar way in Luke 8, 18, where he said, For whoever has, to him more shall be given. But whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. In verse 11, the angel's instructions continue. He said to Zechariah to take the silver and gold, to make an ornate crown, and to set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, this is where I ran into the, the, the first interesting exegetical issue that arises in this text. And that is the fact that the word crown in Hebrew is plural. The word is plural. And, of course, because of that, the commentators go back and forth wondering... Does that mean there's literally um, a plurality of crowns that are to be placed upon Joshua's head? Um, Is the plural there because of the mention of multiple precious uh, metals? Is it because there's gold and silver and maybe these two are, are combined to form one crown that is to be placed on Joshua's head? Maybe that's the call for the plural here in this word. I think at first reading, I know to me it seemed more natural uh, to assume that there would be but one crown for Joshua's head. Um, That is until you read Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 and 12. Uh, Revelation 19, 11 and 12, of course, a text concerning this coming Joshua of whom all of this picture is typological. And reading Revelation 19.11, you become a little more open to the possibility of a plural crowns being literal. This is what Revelation 19.11 and 12 says. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. Um, So Zechariah, we have the type. And in John, the book of Revelation, we are presented with the anti-type. John and Zechariah obviously having the same idea in mind here. And is it not fitting, brothers and sisters, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, be ordained with many crowns? 
It's very fitting. Let's move into this next section here, the, the second section that we're going to look at, verses 12 through 13. And this is interesting as well because here we're seeing how this, this coming branch is typified in Joshua, the priest king. Now, again, what we have now happening in Jerusalem, in Israel, is a high priest being crowned as a king. Now, what's so interesting and important, essential to understand in all of this is that these two offices, priest and king, have always remained distinct in Israel's history. If you remember the example of King Saul from 1 Samuel chapter 13, where as king, he took it upon himself to um, offer some burnt offerings and, and peace offerings instead of waiting for Samuel. And what was the result of the king uh, playing the role of priest there? His kingdom was removed. His kingdom was removed. Now, as I say, that is the normative pattern under the old covenant is that priest and king are, are distinct um, roles given to distinct men, but there are, in fact, a couple of exceptions to there being a priest-king in Jerusalem, both of the exceptions certainly pointing to the coming priest-king. The first exception, and I'm not sure if you guys um, came up with this, Calvin pointed me to this exception, but it's Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Melchizedek is described in Genesis 14 as the king of Salem, most assumed being the king of Jerusalem, uh, the king of Salem and priest of God most high. Melchizedek, having already gone through Hebrews 7, and we know uh, Melchizedek and how he pointed us to the coming Christ. The second exception was given to me by Pastor Urban last week in uh, this is the example and the exception, I would say, to this rule of King David, where in 1 Samuel chapter 30, after the Amalekites have, have raided Ziglag, where King David's people um, were, were staying and positioned while he was away fighting, the Amalekites came and raided Ziglag, took captive the, the, the people of Israel under King David, um, took the women, took the children, took... Uh, two of David's wives, and as a result of this great um, atrocity against his people, David called for Abiathar the priest to give to him the ephod. And with the ephod, King David took it upon himself to seek the Lord with the priest's ephod and sought for the Lord's direction, and the Lord answered him. And the Lord answered him. And so with, with these uh, previous typological examples and the example that we have in our text now of Joshua being crowned priest and king, we see that there is certainly one to come who will ultimately bear this complete duo role of priest and king over God's people forever. Now, Verse 12 begins what, what I'm just referring to as this 
this coronation address that Zechariah is to relate to Joshua, that he's to speak over Joshua as this ceremony is taking place. Verse 12 says, this is what Zechariah is to say. The angel says to him, Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Now, here in this text, we're given both a messianic title for the one whom Joshua is depicting, the name, the, the title of branch, of branch. And here with this title, we're also told what the branch will do, that he will branch out from where he is, that he will build the temple of the Lord, and that he will rule on his throne. In verse 12 here, doesn't tell us much else about this coming branch, um, but we get help. We get help in the book of Zechariah. Turn back to Zechariah chapter 3, because Zechariah has already mentioned this coming branch. He's already mentioned this coming branch in verses 8 through 9. I'm going to read that for us where this messianic expression of the branch has already been used. Zechariah chapter 3 verse 8 says, Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men for a symbol. They're a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription upon it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In one day. Now, let me just point out a couple of pertinent points, important points that Zechariah has already stated in chapter 3 about the branch that is important for us to understand as he mentions the branch in chapter 6. What does he tell us here concerning the branch? Well, we see in verse 8 that Joshua himself is not the branch, but there is a branch to come. Verse 8 even tells us that Joshua and his friends are, in a sense, but symbols. It uses the word symbols. They are but a symbol, in a sense, but a type of what is to come. In verse, in verse 9, we learn that through this coming branch, that God will remove the iniquity of the land of Israel. That God will remove the land of Israel. That's important because this branch, what to, what to know and to expect about the branch is that forgiveness of sins will be the prominent aspect of his ministry. The removal of iniquity. And also, to add more detail to that, Verse 9 tells us that the removal of the iniquity will be brought about in one day. Now I say that's important because the fact that iniquity will be removed in one day precludes the idea that through some sort of process, some sort of long drawn out process, uh, particularly of maybe rebuilding the temple or 
uh, continuing the repetitive nature of the sacrificial system within the temple. Um, the fact that iniquity will be removed in one day precludes the idea of those ongoing processes of being the means by which the branch will bring about forgiveness of sins. It will not be by those repetitive ongoing processes, but no, the branch will bring, bring about forgiveness of sins in one day. In one day he will accomplish this. Now, Zechariah therefore gives us what I would say is a lot more insight into the priestly nature of the branch's work. The priest provides the forgiveness of sins. He is the mediator for that work. And so Zechariah provides the priestly aspects of the nature of the branch's work. But if now if you turn to Jeremiah chapter 33, turn to Jeremiah 33, where here we get aspects of the kingly aspects of the branch's work. Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. Here we see how the branch whom Jeremiah was like, likewise aware of, how he will be in the line of the king. Verse 14 says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch a righteous branch of David, of King David, to spring forth. And he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. And so now we see with this branch theology that we have this combination of the branch's priestly functions being intertwined with the reality that this branch will spring forth out of King David's kingly lineage. The branch is both priest and king. Back to our text. Back to our text in Zechariah now. Because here, now back in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13 we see the same thing. The, the, the biblical theology of the branch continues throughout Zechariah. For instance, in verse 13, as a priest, the branch will do what? He will build the temple of the Lord, which obviously, in context here, cannot be referring to the temple, the temple that's already constructed, uh, being constructed, and is given um, by King Zerubbabel is, is given the uh, the uh, the authority to build that and, and the and the prominence for building that in Jerusalem. No, that temple's been long under construction, but this must be referring to a coming temple of the Lord that the branch will build. And then in the second part of verse thirteen, as the king, the branch will be the one to bear the honor, and to rule on his throne. And so in this way, the priest, the priest then will be on his throne. 
The priest will be on his throne, and, and therefore the council of peace will be between the two offices. This coming branch, of whom Joshua is but a symbol, will combine the two offices of priest and king. Now for us, of course, this side of the incarnation, there's no doubt who this branch is. We know who is per so perfectly, so, so beautifully combined these two offices in his person, both priest and king. It's so obvious to us, especially with the New Testament revelation. But many have stumbled. Many have stumbled over this um, combined office of the Messiah. For example, for some, like the Essene, the Essene community, the, the, these people who dwelt around the, the Dead Sea that dwelt among the, amongst the, the Qumran caves in the first century, they actually believed because of prophecies like the one that we're looking at that there would be, in fact, two messiahs, that there would be a, a kingly messiah to come and then a priestly messiah to come. But the New Testament lays out for us the perfect work of Jesus Christ as being just that, our high priest and our king. And I think it leaves little doubt why um, texts, turn to one more text, turn to Psalm 110, turn to Psalm 110 because I think we see here why there's little doubt that a text like Psalm 110 would be the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. Um, here we see just why that may have been. Uh, because here in Psalm 110, we have painted for us something that the apostles, something that the authors of the New Testament fully understood, that the Messiah would bear both roles, both priest and king in the same role. Notice the first two verses, Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2, Christ's kingly role. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter, your kingly scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. As well, we see in Psalm 110, Christ's priestly role as Messiah. Notice verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in our New Testaments, relaying to us exactly what we're seeing in the book of Zechariah chapter 6. I thought it was interesting to note that as, as we come to more texts in our New Testament, that we see the authors there um, pointing specifically to Jesus' ascension his ascension to the right hand of the Father as being the, the crowning fusion of Christ's priestly work and in the fusion with his kingly position as king at the right hand of God the Father. And so I thought that was interesting to note as we um, think so often of the cross itself being so central to our salvation, and certainly it is. As Pastor Urban reminded us last week of the importance of the resurrection 
following uh, the death of Christ being so central to our salvations. But notice the importance, likewise, of the ascension that occurs after the resurrection in a text such as Hebrews chapter 10. I can, I can just read this one for you. But the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father is likewise important um, to our understanding of, of our salvations. I actually was thinking about preaching my whole sermon on the ascension to follow up Pastor Urban's sermon, but I thought, I don't want to put myself with Pastor Urban. And so I totally separated myself by going to a completely different text. I, 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 I greatly honor and admire his preaching. Um, I feel the same burden following him as I do Emilio anytime I have to preach here. Um, I... I I hope that y'all pray for me. I hope that y'all pray for me. This is not easy. So notice um, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 14, and how the ascension becomes the, the crowning work, in a sense, of the priestly and kingly work of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 14 says, But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. There's the forgiveness of sins being brought about in one day. And then we see the, the priestly work of Jesus Christ being offered up here, offering up a sacrifice as priest. Now the ascension, Hebrews 10.12 says, that he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. He's sitting at the right hand of God as king on his throne, the ascension of Christ as king. And then in verse 14 again, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And so we see and will see because the good news is that as Pastor Emilio comes back, we'll be back in the book of Hebrews Coming back to Hebrews, very soon to be in this very text where we'll see the consummation of the messianic work and the redemption of Jesus Christ as priest and king. Now, let's look lastly at this last section um, in Zechariah chapter 6. Turn back there because here now we see we see how the building of the temple, how the branch is going to build this temple that will in fact therefore be a sign of fulfillment. The building of the branch's temple will be a sign of fulfillment. Verse 14 says, Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Hen is just um, another name for the Josiah that we saw previously. Verse 15 says, Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Now, now what's so interesting here is that um, it, as you notice in verse 14, it says that the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord. Now, it's interesting to note that the crown does not remain on Joshua's head as if um, Joshua 
is in fact this king of whom all of this is, is pointing. No, after this ceremony, the, the crown is actually taken, um, or should I say crowns, the crowns are actually taken off of Josiah, I mean off of Joshua, and they're placed into the temple. And it says they're to be placed into the temple as a reminder. The, the crowns there are a reminder of a future king to come. The text says it's a reminder to those who will come from afar off, it says. And it names these men again who came from Babylon. It came from the Goyim. They came from the Gentiles. Um, and so these men likewise play a, a symbolic role in the fact that the branches, priestly and kingly work will, will not only be for those who are of the people of Israel ethnically or locally, but that many from afar off will pour in to partake of the blessings of the branches temple and of the branches priestly and kingly work. Verse 15 says, Then you will know, then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So I say this is a sign of fulfillment because what we have is that all of this ingathering of people from afar will be a sign, will be a sign of fulfillment that the branch, that the Messiah has in fact come. And we know that that's what we see in the coming of Jesus Christ, that there was a branching out of salvation from Israel to all of the world. Jesus said it in John chapter 10, verse 16. Uh, Brother Chris mentioned this one in, in Sunday school. Jesus said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. One flock with one shepherd. So, we, brothers and sisters, by our having been brought into Christ through the preaching of the gospel are the confirmation that God's branch has in fact come into the world. By the fact that we have been saved by God is fulfillment that the branch has certainly come. I want us to turn to another passage, Ephesians chapter 2. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 because here we, I think that the Apostle Paul, let me just say it like this. If you've been paying attention to Zechariah chapter 6, you're going to hear now in Ephesians chapter 2 many concepts, many key words that um, should send up red flags of Zechariah chapter 6. Zechariah chapter 3. Let me read for us Ephesians chapter 2 verses 13 through 22 it says but now in Christ Jesus you who were formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself 
he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. I don't know how much of that you picked up on, but I can assure you that um, having studied Zechariah in chapters 3 and 6, I feel like I understand Ephesians chapter 2 uh, much more thoroughly, much, much more deeply. I understand where Paul is coming from in all of his descriptions of uh, those who are far off being called near this peace that we now have, the fact that we, we are the temple of Christ. We are the temple of God being built up, uh, being sprouted out, being branching out. We are, in fact, the temple of the Lord. That's what we are. We are the temple of the Lord being built up of both Jews and Gentiles. Both of us, both of us, Jew and Gentile, being united to the priest king. Now what's so amazing about that is the fact that because of this union that we now have with the priest king, we too have now obtained a priestly and kingly status. Because of our union with the priest king, we too now bear priestly and kingly status. That, that priestly and kingly role that we lost in the garden because of our sin in Adam. We had a kingly role. We were given dominion over the world. We had a priestly role. We had full access to God. We lost that in our sin, but we gain it back in Christ. Listen to how 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 describes it. It says, you know the verse, but we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a kingly priesthood. We have gained by our union with Christ a restoration of the image of God that we were intended to have that was marred by the fall. We gain this back. The restoration is ours in Christ. So, why do we go back to Old Testament texts such as Zechariah chapter 6? What should prophetic and Typological scriptures provide for us. 
Well, they should foster in us faith. They should stir up faith in us to see how it is that God has been sovereignly working throughout all of human history to reveal the coming of His Son. These texts should renew our confidence in the faithfulness of God and in the faithfulness of His Word. We see that the 66 books of the Bible are not a a random collation of, of, of pious sayings that have been collected over the centuries, but the 66 books of our Bible are in fact a singular message from the singular true and living God who has been graciously revealing himself and graciously revealing his salvation through his Son since the creation of the universe. To look back upon uh, prophetic texts should renew our confidence in the fact that this Jesus of Nazareth is in fact the Messiah of God who will save his people from their sins. And since his son has been the center of his revelation since the very beginning of time, well, brothers and sisters, we dare not ignore him. The son is to have first place in everything. Here's the thing about the son. Here's the thing about Jesus Christ, the priest and king is that no matter who you are here in this church today, he is in fact your king, whether in fact you have bowed the knee or not, but you will bow the knee um, one day, eventually. So he is everyone's king. But what we all need him to likewise be is our priest, a priest And it's a role that he gladly and is honored to fill for anyone who is willing to repent of their sin and to put all of their faith and all of their trust in his priestly work. And by God's grace, brothers and sisters, we have been brought into this priestly work. We now have peace with our king We are now those who are sent out, in a sense, by the king with his message of salvation. And my prayer is that everyone here, whether adult or child, will come to know Christ not only as king, but as their priest, that they would find comfort in his priestly work upon the cross, that they would know and have the reconciliation with God and the the peace that that brings, knowing that when you face the king, um, we, will, we will all bow, but we will also be called to arise and to behold the glory of God and to see his face and to see it with joy. And we will not turn away ashamed because we will be clothed in the righteousness of our priest and king. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, Father, I just thank you for your word. Lord, where would, we be, where would we be without it? Lord, where would our minds wander off into 
without your, without your word, to whom would we look? To whom would our, our eyes of faith wander to if we didn't have the Christ laid before us in your word? Lord, we know that our priest, that our king, prayed for us to be sanctified by your word, and so we thank you for it. Lord, I pray that in this church, Lord, that your spirit would accompany your word. Lord, many churches have your word, Lord, but many churches are unfruitful. Lord, and God forbid that we come Sunday after Sunday, men's fellowship after men's fellowship, women's study after women's study, small group after small group, Lord, God forbid that we spend our lives coming to your word and it profit us not. Lord, that on our day we may expect to be welcomed into your kingdom by, by the king. And yet he said to us, depart, you worker of iniquity. God, save us. God, have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy on Heritage Grace Community Church. Lord, pour out your spirit on your church when we open your word, that it may be effectual. Lord, that when we look at texts that speak of our king and texts that speak of our priest who is willing to lay down his own life for us, that it would stir us up to read on to texts that tell us how to live, how to submit to our great and glorious king, and that by your spirit, God, you would give us the grace to submit our minds, to submit our lives, to submit our cares and our joys to you. Lord, that you would be glorified in our lives, that we would live lives of obedience, that we would have great assurance that you, in fact, are our priest, that Christ has, in fact, taken care for us, the problem that we had with our sin, the damning problem of sin. Lord, grant us by your Spirit assurance that we would have joy. Lord, restore to us the joys of our salvation. Grant by your mercy salvation to our children, Lord, to our friends, Lord, to our family members who come to this place with us. Lord, have mercy on us, Lord. Let us be a light. Lord, we desire to be a light for your salvation. Lord, we pray that you would continue to glorify your branch through the ingathering of Gentiles. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.